There are many pastors and people throughout the world that claim that they can heal people. I'm sure most of us have heard of Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn's a a Pentecostal minister who travels around the world and hosts events where he allows people with sicknesses and disabilities to, to come on stage. And occasionally, he'll take the time out to allow the person to speak about their disease, whether they're blind or deaf or in a wheelchair, and then he'll go into the healing part of his routine. And often, one part of his healing, and you can see this on YouTube videos, he'll, he'll, uh, he'll take his jacket off, his suit jacket off, and he'll sling it in front of people's face, faces. And he'll come up, or he'll shove them in the chest or in the face. And the person then falls down, and Hen will pronounce them as, or claim that they're healed. Sometimes the person themselves will claim to have been healed. Kenneth Copeland, a minister and televangelist, recently tried to heal the nation of the coronavirus. In one video, Copeland begins his prayer by yelling out, and, and here's a quote, standing in the office of the prophet of God, I execute judgment on you, COVID-19. I demand, I demand, I demand a vaccine to come immediately. In another video, Copeland asked those who have been infected by the virus to place their hand on the television screen. Put your hand on the television set, he says. And then he lifts his own hand, dripping with oil up to the camera and says, in the name of Jesus, receive your healing now. Copeland and Hen's events and their prayers and their demeanor can often be so off-putting, so far out there, that they tend to only deceive or convince the most naive and gullible among us. Others are a little more subtle and can even come off as sincere and genuine, genuine when they do these supposed healings. Todd White is another person who claims to have this gift of healing, and he's kind of the David Blaine of the faith healers. He's typically not found in a major auditorium. White often goes to the streets, and videos online show him praying with and for for people like Satanists, telling people that God loves them and that he loves them. And he often sounds very sincere when he says these things. Most of the time, White will go around uh, the streets putting his hands on people and claiming to have healed people of their back pain or other pain. One of his more popular ways of healing them is that he'll walk up to a crowd and he'll ask them 
Which one of you has, has back pain? Someone then responds uh, that it's them. And what White will go on to tell him, is he'll say, the reason why you have back pain is because one of your legs are shorter than, one of your legs is shorter than the other leg. He'll then have the person kick up their legs. He'll place their heels into his hands. And then as he's praying, it'll appear when you're watching it that the shortened leg is actually beginning to grow. What Hen, Copeland, and White have in common is that they all claim to have the gift of healing. They all claim, and this is important, that they can heal by command and on the spot. Copeland and Hen especially see healing as a power they can use at any time they want. And all three of them use Jesus' name. Whenever they pray or they command for a healing, they always pray or command it to happen in Jesus' name. Jesus' name gives them their power. And what underlies their thinking, if there's any sincerity at all, is that now that Jesus has come and reversed the curse, we are living in an age and an era where God will heal everyone. Many faith healers use Isaiah 53 to justify this, saying that by Jesus' stripes, we are healed. And so that means Jesus' death on the cross now purchases us full healing. Many Christians can sometimes be confused as to what we should do when we are sick, how we should think about it. Some wonder, should we just stay at home and and pray and trust God? Or should we call the elders of the church to come pray over us? Should we trust hospitals, doctors, and modern medicine? How does all those things work together? I want you all to ask yourselves the question. Is there still a gift of healing? Are people able to command for healings to happen on the spot? And does God still do miraculous healings today? If so, how? It's been a few weeks since we've been in Acts, so I want to give a little context before digging into our text. So after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to his disciples and he taught them about the kingdom of God for 40 days. He then promised that they would receive the Holy Spirit and he told them that they need to wait in Jerusalem. And then 10 days later, and 120 disciples of Jesus received the Holy Spirit. 
Peter then boldly and with the Holy Spirit's power preaches to thousands of Jews and proselytes in Jerusalem on Pentecost. And in a single day, 3,000 Jews repented and were baptized. And the last time we met, we discussed the ordinary means of grace that this new family participated in. And now our text begins in verse 1 of chapter 3. Let's look. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So Peter and John, they were often together. We saw this last week as these were the the two disciples who raced to the empty tomb. Peter and John, they were part of Jesus' inner circle and perhaps they developed a, a close bond through that experience. And notice that they go up to the temple. Now this is odd because things like the Sabbath and the temple were all shadows and Jesus is the substance. But yet the disciples haven't yet seemed to have left behind the temple because they're going up to the temple to pray. On a side note, we're going to see that this, the break from all these shadows is, is going to happen in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem council. And they go up to the temple during the hour of prayer. Now the temple had three separate hours of prayer, three times a day. The one they're headed to now, which would be three in the afternoon for our time, it was the busiest of all the prayer times. So they're at the temple, and verse two says, a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. The attention now focuses on a man who was lame from birth. Luke, most likely because many believe him to have been a physician, wants us to know that this man has always had this condition. He's always been disabled. There's nothing that could have been done. No doctor could have prevented this. And giving us this detail, it demonstrates the hopelessness of the situation. And because of this condition, he had to be carried everywhere he went. In his condition, he wasn't able to work or make a living to, uh, for himself. So according to our text, on a daily basis, they carried him and placed him in front of the beautiful gate to ask for money. What was the beautiful gate? The beautiful gate was close to what was called Solomon's porch. And a first century Jewish historian named Josephus is believed to have described the gate when he said, 
And this is a quote. There were nine of the gates that were overlaid with silver and gold, but one without the temple or sanctuary made of Corinthian brass far excelled those of gold or silver. So you can just imagine this, this sort of contrast with this, this beautiful, gorgeous gate with silver and gold and sitting right in front of it is a crippled beggar. When I go to ShopRite in Montague, I've always noticed, uh, particularly over the summer and, and fall last year, that when I get off the highway on the exit to ShopRite, at the very end of the exit, right when you get to the light, there's always a homeless guy, same one. He's always there asking for food and money. And in the shopping right parking lot itself, as you're leaving the parking lot, there's usually a woman there holding a cup or something else asking for money. And you can see these two so often that you almost don't even see them anymore. It just becomes common. And it must have been a similar way, feeling when people would pass by this man as well. No one noticing him, just walking past him day by day. Verses 1 to 2 are setting the scene. Let's look at verse 3 now. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. As the man is sitting at the gate, he sees Peter and John heading into the temple and he asks them like he does everyone else, do you have something for me? Can I have some money? And they respond and look at verses four and five. And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Peter and John look at him. So notice how much attention in this text is given to this look. The text says that he directed his gaze. It says, look at us and fixed his attention. One scholar points out that he thinks the attention is meant to contrast everybody else that passes him by. Often with beggars, and this is certainly not all the time, but there is a shame in having to ask to receive something, especially after being told no. And often the person being asked who's being asked, feels this sort of a, a sense of superiority or even arrogance. And whether from shame or from arrogance, the beggar and the one that's being asked often won't look at each other face to face or eye to eye. But with all of the language of focusing on the fact that they looked at each other, 
demonstrates that they are making a deep human-to-human connection. Look at verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. By saying what I have to give to you, Peter, he sort of downplays what he's about to do, what he has in store. And if you're the lame beggar and you hear that, you'd probably feel a little disappointment in knowing that he doesn't have any money for you, but also at the same time a little bit of excitement and and mystery because what could this be? And so Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. We spoke about this about a month or so ago, but by saying in the name of Jesus, you're saying on his authority. If you remember in the Gospels when Jesus would go around healing people, he would command for people to be healed and it would be on his own authority. He would simply say things like, rise, take up your bed and walk. But Peter here doesn't simply give that command, but instead says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Jesus has authority over sickness and disease, and Peter has to call on him and his authority to heal people. So imagine for a second being born, and from the earliest time that you can remember, you've always maybe been in a wheelchair since you could sit in one. Imagine that for for 40 years you've been in this wheelchair. You've never walked a day in your life. You don't even know the simple pleasure that comes from walking. But then you meet a man and he tells you to get up and walk. What would your reaction be? It'd probably be disbelief. And the lame beggar in our story must have felt something similar. So what's going to happen? Verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. As I was saying, he probably wasn't entirely confident that he could get up after Peter had told him to get up, which is why Peter Peter probably grabbed him and took him by the right hand and lifted him up. Once again, Luke, like a physician, gives us specific details about the healing. He writes that his feet and ankles were made strong. Let's look at verse 8. And leaping up, 
he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So to the surprise of the beggar, it worked. Instantly, immediately, he went from never walking a day in his life to now walking around and even leaping. This was a true miraculous event. If the first section was setting the scene, these last few verses, this last section was about the actual miracle. Let's go to verses 9 to 10. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And we saw in verse 8, the once lame beggar had gotten up, began walking and leaping, and he entered the temple area. And those in the temple area had recognized who he was. The very man who had once sat at the gate day after day after day and year after year was now jumping around completely healed. Now these Jews in the first century are going to the temple to pray to and worship God. But many Jews in the first century recognized God hadn't been moving or acting at all in hundreds of years. But if this man, who everyone recognized as crippled, is now fully healed, then that must have been a work of God. And so God uses Peter and John to heal this man to show everyone that it's obvious that God is working through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus and the Christian movement is where God is moving. Jesus is where there's healing. Jesus is where there's salvation. And in the next section, verses 11 to 26, Peter's about to give a speech, and it's this miraculous sign that gets their attention. This miraculous healing verifies the apostles' message, testifies to it. And the point, if we were to take all that together, is that the miraculous healing testifies to the apostles' message about Jesus. And here's the application. Though God used miracles to testify to the truth, 
with the establishment of the word, he now mainly uses ordinary means to heal us. In the early church, miracles were often used to to testify to Jesus' message and the, the apostles' message. Jesus, he went around healing many people of all kinds of diseases and illnesses. And his resurrection from the dead was the greatest sign of all. Jesus, being the author of life itself, could heal at his own word. And the apostles, they had this miraculous gift of healing, and that gift was necessary during that time. But this gift, and we could talk about in places where the word's not established, that perhaps something like this could, be, could exist there, but this gift largely doesn't exist anymore. People cannot simply go around and heal people on command. People like Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland are doing fake healings. They use the name of Jesus and they use God as an end for their own personal gain. And that personal gain is money. Benny Hinn himself is known uh, for living a luxurious lifestyle. His nephew, Costi Hinn, has stopped working for his uncle and now is, I believe, a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. In an article in Christianity Today, Christianity Today, Costi Hinn said that they lived a life of luxury. He said they would fly in private jets and even stay in $25,000 a night hotel rooms in Dubai. And here's a quote from him in the article about what he experienced in his uncle Benny's ministry. So while he was helping his uncle, he at first he felt like he was being persecuted by those in the church, like Jesus and Paul, and being persecuted by conservative Christians and, and Dateline. But he came to the realization that something just wasn't right. He says, One day I asked my father, who's not Benny Him, but part of the ministry, if we could go heal my friend from school who had lost her hair due to cancer. He replied that we should pray for her at home rather than going to heal her. I thought to myself, shouldn't we be doing what the apostles did if we have the same gift? At that point, I didn't question our ability to heal, but doubts began to stir about our motives. We only did healings in the Crusades where music created the atmosphere, money changed hands, and people approached us with the right amount of faith. And it's actually the first paragraph of the article in Christianity Today that we get a glimpse into the way that they thought about Jesus and ministry with these faith healing ministries. Listen to this. Our lifestyle was lavish. Our loyalty was enforced. And our version of the gospel was big business. Though Jesus Christ was still a part of our gospel, he was more of a magic genie than the king of kings. Rubbing him the right way by giving him money and having enough faith would unlock your spiritual inheritance. 
God's goal was not his glory, but our gain. His grace was not to set us free from sin, but to make us rich. The abundant life he offered wasn't eternal. It was now. We lived the prosperity gospel. Kenneth Copeland has been well known for for having a lot of private planes and that he constantly keeps buying newer and faster and more luxurious airplanes. One time he said that he had to take, uh, that to have to take, he has to take a private plane because if he flies commercial, he said that's like getting in a tube with demons. These faith healers, these people who have to, who claim to have this apostolic gift of healing, and particularly men like Hinn and Copeland, they are charlatans using God in these fake healings to make themselves rich and prosperous. Does God still heal miraculously today? Yes. Yes, he does. Recently, I was reading a biography on uh, George Mueller, and I couldn't recommend reading George Mueller enough. Uh, If you ever want encouragement and to see God working through a man, read about George Mueller. He's one of the most fascinating people I've ever read about. But at one point, Mueller thought that he was going to die, and he was at the point of death, and he just prayed that if God wants to take him, then he's fine with that. But he did pray for healing. And amazingly, he miraculously recovered. And there are many confirmed stories and cases from here in the U.S. and around the world of people being told that they have no chance of living and then praying and then miraculously a tumor or something like that will be gone or begin to shrink. So should we pray for one another to be healed? Of course. James 5 says, if anyone is sick among you, let him pray. James also talks about going to the elders and having them place their hands on you and to pray for you. God still uses those means to heal people. But that's not the same gift as the apostolic gift where they would lay their hands on people and in the name of Jesus command for someone to be healed and would instantly be healed. But God still uses those those means of, of people praying and the elders praying over them. Does that mean that we should simply pray then? and use the elders, or, and trust God, or, or does that mean that we shouldn't trust doctors and hospitals? No. Some people say that we should just trust God, and that has this false assumption that seeking out ordinary God-given means somehow isn't trusting God. There's a story I heard recently on a Christian radio show where there's this pastor overseas somewhere 
and he just wanted to trust God. And so he began taking extremely sick people out of a hospital and then he brought them to the church and he began praying for all of them. They died. Look, of course, we should trust God, but trusting God doesn't mean that we abandon all common sense and reasoning or that we don't need to take precautions. It doesn't mean that we just sit around and only pray, neglecting every other God-given means that we have. I sometimes hear people say, if it's my time to go, then it's my time to go. And yes, that, that's, that's true. God does know the day that you'll die. But there's also this mystery of God's sovereignty over your life and death, also with the consistency of having a greater life expectancy that we find in people who use wisdom and godly means. For instance, people who don't smoke, don't get lung cancer as often. People who eat a certain way are less likely to get heart disease, and so on. Yes, it's true when it's your time to go, it's your time to go, but if you don't use God's ordinary means, it's going to be your time to go a lot sooner. Yes, God knows the day of your death, but the means of living life foolishly and carelessly tends to mark out those who depart earlier. There's an illustration that I was reminded of recently by a friend. And it goes that there's a man that's, that's drowning, drowning. And a boat shows up and he, he tries to save the man, but the man responds, no, I am praying God will save me. So the boat leaves. And then a helicopter shows up and says, says get in. But the man responds again, no, God will rescue me. And so the helicopter leaves. And then the man, he drowns, and then he goes to meet God, and he asks in amazement, why didn't you rescue me? And God replies, I tried by sending you a boat and a helicopter, but you didn't want to get in. The boat and the helicopter were the ordinary means and answers, answer to the man's prayer for rescue, but he denied it. And we do something similar when we talk about trusting God and abandoning God-given wisdom. Sometimes I think people use the excuse of trusting God to justify living recklessly. God has given us wonderful, ordinary means to heal us. Doctors, nurses, scientists made in the image of God, using their God-given minds and talents to heal diseases. He's given us minds to learn and advance and grow in medicine. 
That's a blessing. If we get sick, we shouldn't claim, we shouldn't seek out a faith healer or someone who claims that they have the gift of healing, but we should trust God by asking for prayers, maybe seeking out elders, and also using hospitals and doctors. And all this, with this uh, apostolic gift of healing passing away and, and trying to figure out how this works in our modern context, there's application particularly for our present situation. Trusting God in this coronavirus situation doesn't mean throwing caution to the wind and abandoning all reasoning. It means trusting experts, people who know a whole lot more about disease prevention than we do. It means social distancing. It means washing your hands. If you, let me ask you a question. If you began vomiting blood or you had a, a minor heart attack, would you just sit at home and pray without getting it checked out? Why would this be any different? If you went to the doctor in that situation or the hospital, does that mean that you're scared? Does that mean that you're not trusting God? Of course not. We are living in an age where God has provided advancements in medicine and technology, and it's wise to use it. Because of that, and because the word of God has been established, miraculous healings are less common and not as necessary. So God now uses ordinary means to heal us. If you're not believing in Jesus Christ, you can never be healed of your greatest issue. Sin. Because of sin, you and I both stand condemned before God. And I, I know you've heard the cross, but what's happening on the cross is that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. And if you will repent and believe in Jesus and trust in his sacrificial death and his life alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you can be forgiven today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the miraculous gifts were a sign in the early church and often in places around the world are a what you used to testify to the, to the apostles' message, to Jesus' message, to um, places where the word hasn't been established. 
We thank you that you use those. But knowing now, Father, that we live in a new context where your word has been established, we know that those gifts, that the more common way we go about being healed is not going to ministries like Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland's or others. It's through the, the, the wisdom that you've given to men and women created in your image. And we thank you for the, the gift of modern medicine. And, and we pray, uh, give you thanks and blessing. And, and we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.